0: Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. On Bloomberg World, Hank Waters, I'm Charlie Pellet, The Dow, the S&P, NASDAQ, they are all declining. And right now we have got the S&P 500 index slumping 17 points, close to the low of the session at 2147, down 8 tenths of 1%. 13 minutes to go ahead of the close. Dow Industrials down 154 points, down Nine tenths of one percent. NASDAQ is down forty four points, a drop of eight tenths of one percent. The ten year up at ten thirty seconds at yield one point five eight percent. Gold down a dollar fifty the ounce now to thirteen thirty six, a drop of one tenth of one percent. I'm Charlie Pallet, and that's a Bloomberg Business Flash.
1: Charlie Pella, thank you so very much. It's time now for the ETF report brought to you by Bentley University. What do time at the Finances at Converse and Managing Asset Allocations at J.P. Morgan have in common? A business degree from Bentley University because business is everywhere. Prepare here. Smart beta, what is it and what does it do? For this, we turn to Catherine Cattery. There are nearly 800 smart beta ETFs by some counts, and they vary in complexity, from a simple change in weighting to multi-factor products. Here's Bloomberg Intelligence analyst Eric Balchunas on smart beta
2: ETFs. I think for most people, it sounds like something you get at the GNC store, um, but it's not that hard to understand. You just think of an index like the S and P 500, right? How does it weight the stocks by market cap? Smart beta is anything that doesn't do that. It weights it in different ways. Maybe it says, "Hey." Let's weight the S&P 500 stocks by their dividend output or by their volatility levels. That's all it is.
1: Beltuna says performance chasing is one of the dangers that Smart Beta ETFs pose.
2: You see the performance like for the past six months and you think, oh, it's doing well, I'll get in. Well, that might be the worst time to get in. So, you know, it's really about the same thing with active funds in terms of people missing the uh, gains and going in at the exact wrong time.
1: Balthunas sounds another cautionary note about smart beta ETFs, not understanding the volatility. He says they can be more volatile than other funds. That's your Bloomberg ETF report. I'm Catherine Cowdery.
0: This is Taking Stock with Kathleen Hayes and Pim Fox on Bloomberg Radio. We are broadcasting live from Midtown Manhattan from the offices of Eisner Amper. They are all preparing for their fourth annual real estate private equity summit. It will take place at Pier 60 this Wednesday, the 28th, Pier 60 at the Chelsea Piers, and one of the uh, speakers, the keynote speaker, indeed, will be Sam Zell of uh, the uh, equity group. Uh, He'll be talking about real estate and his uh, outlook for real estate. All right, now we want someone to tell us their outlook for bonds and interest rates, because we know that that. That is connected directly to real estate. Dan Fuss joins us. He is the chairman of Loomis Sales and a company based in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1200. And uh, Dan manages the firm's Loomis Sales Bond Fund, LSBDX. Captured a return of eight and a half percent annually over the past three years. Dan Fuss, thank you for being with us.
2: Well, thanks, Pim. Good to be here.
0: All right. So, what uh, what accounts for your your success? Eight and a half percent over the past three years, beating ninety seven percent of your competitors.
2: Luck. Luck. Oh no. Interest rates. Yeah. Um. Fortunately timed withdrawals. From the fund, uh, it, you never like that, but once in a while they help out. Uh, and the the one thing that I think marketing would rather I emphasize is issue selection, and uh, that's we have a low market covariance. We don't march exactly in line with the rest of the bond. The bond market all hears the same cadence count and tends to march in the same direction. It's, uh, you get trampled if you go completely the other way. But there are times to veer away. And uh, so it all depends on when you stop the clock. It's same bonds, new prices. And... Okay, Kathleen. Well, I just
1: have to – okay, so we've had, uh, what, four years or five up until this year, although so far so good, I think, when the bond market bet and Fed doesn't know what they're doing, they're not going to raise rates, and bonds rallied and bonds rallied. Now maybe we're at a turning point. Now, obviously, your main (coughs) stay is not treasury bonds, but they do kind of call the tune for the rest of the market. So how has Dan fussed? What's the number one thing you've done to have that trend benefit you, but then, you know – Head in the direction you've been touting lately, which is more credit risk less interest rate risk.
2: Well, number one, I'll be self-critical. I've been too cautious, too conservative. I've kept reserves, uh, you know, short-term, sitting in short-term governments. Uh, And uh, that has proved unnecessary insurance, and it's been costly insurance. I'd have been better off putting all the reserves in 30-year treasuries and going to learn how to play golf. Uh, the uh, Because I think the setting is there uh, for an eventual rise in interest rates. It's been there domestically for a while. Internationally, it's not. Internationally. <clears throat> I think the only major central bank likely to raise rates is our own, and they'll wait till the election's over. And the domestic pressures are behind that. The international pressures are not the short wrap up statement is that our central bank and the European central bank and the Japanese central bank and to a lesser degree much lesser degree UK and Swiss and Canada are caught in uh, a mismatch with their domestic mandates their domestic mandates say you look after your own situation and Not under the formal language of the mandate are you supposed to go out and look after the rest of the world, and the problem is the rest of the world. And if the rest of the world really goes wrong and the funds go sailing out of it, that creates a problem for us. And that's part one. Part two is there is a mismatch between fiscal policy and monetary policy, and monetary policy is carrying that load. Now that, I think, is about to end. But the international is not going away.
0: All right. Now you mentioned that you think this is going to end this uh, this monetary and fiscal imbalance. You think that there'll be a lot of spending on the part of uh, whoever's uh, running the show come uh, November.
2: We'll have to see who whoever is. And oftentimes missed in the understandable interest uh, for the chief executive, the president is how the Congress is going to shake out. And, uh, the you know, here you have a spectrum of views as to what ought to be done on fiscal policy side. It can be very hard to do anything, no matter who the president is, unless you get some sort of uh, agreement within the Congress, which seems to be at a very, very, very low level. So uh, all you can do is make your guesses. It would greatly help, greatly help from my point of view. Uh, the central bank, the Fed, deal with its side of the domestic equation. If you could get uh, more oomph to the economy through spending, but also, and these are contradictory, um... Uh, A little more revenue gathering by the federal government. Now, those two things are are contradictory. You say, well, they ought to spend more money, but they ought to have more revenue to pay for it. What are your odds politically Mm -hmm. of getting that thing through?
1: You know, everybody's saying that we need more fiscal spending. The U- U.S. Federal Reserve is saying it. Mario Draghi pounded the table again today in front of the EU Parliament instead of the ECB. Did he? Governor okay. Kuroda, Go BOJ, you know this full yeah. Mr. Fuss, he's also pounding the table. But I particularly want yeah. to ask you about Governor Kuroda, Bank of Japan. Okay. They are, are hell bent now on twisting their yield curve, right? They want those long-term yields up. They don't want to run out of bonds to buy. They A big, big switch. They were targeting money supply. Now they've got the yield curve. Is this going to work, and what does it mean for a bond investor? Well,
2: it means confusion. Um, the basic problem is sort of none of the above. The basic problem is a people problem, lack of. The population in total, from numbers I look at, is, is shrinking. The work age, the traditional 20, 21, whatever, to age 65 population is shrinking. The population's, are, is increasingly coming together in the major cities, the countryside's being left empty. I mean, it's a very, very, very civilized, uh, Uh, You know, good place in every aspect of life you can think of, except there are less and less people, and it, uh, because of the water and the the policy, you don't have other people moving in to fill that vacancy. So, how on God's earth are you going to get 2% real growth in total, gene, you know, gross, whatever, with less and less people? Yes. How are you going to do it?
0: What do you uh, think the Federal Reserve is going to do in December?
2: Raise rates a quarter.
0: How many times next year? Two. Two times.
2: Yeah. yeah that's guesswork, Pam. Yeah. Um, okay.
1: Is that just quick, quick, quick final answer? You got five seconds. Is that going to get in the bond market's way? It'll help. It'll help. All right. Well, Dan, Buzz, you got to help us out. You got to come back soon.
2: I will
1: do that. All right. Dan Fuss is chairman. Luma Sales & Co. based in Boston. He's in New York City today, and that's why he joined us here at the Eisner Amper Real Estate uh, event ahead of their private equity summit this week. We're having a very special live broadcast with Eisner Amper. This is Taking Stock, and this is Bloomberg.